<laughs> All right, thank you. It's good to start the morning with a chuckle, right? Um, for those that you don't know me, my name is Terry, and I am on the pastoral team here. And just as it was Jacob's delight to guide us through the liturgy, this morning it is my delight to uh, guide us through the Word. And Jacob, I want to thank you for uh, that word this morning. I was reminded of uh, uh, the great Baptist English preacher Spurgeon, who used to, before he would ever step into the pulpit, he would, he would fervently pray, God, I can't go up there without you. Is this going in and out? Hmm. All right, we'll keep going. <laughs> And uh, I was down there, as Jake, even before Jacob uh, stepped up, going, God, I, I can't go up there without you. I'm preaching um, on just two short verses this morning, um, but it's uh, one of my favorite verses. And uh, so I, uh, I'm approaching this with a lot of uh, humility and, um, uh, yeah, just a lot of humility going, um, Lord, I... I want to do it justice. And, and then he reminded me, it's not you doing it's justice, it's me doing it's justice. So I'm praying that this morning I will be a, just a vessel. And it's particularly challenging for me because um, this week I've just been looking at this verse through new eyes and seeing things, seeing things that, uh, feeling things, hearing things from God that... Um, Give it a whole new, well, maybe not a whole new perspective, but a, a vibrant perspective. And I hope I can portray that or project that to you as well. But before we go into the Word, would you pray with me? So uh, here I am, Lord. Uh, here I stand. I can do no other. I'm depending upon you, Holy Spirit, to fill me and to project from my well my mouth, words from the throne of grace. Father, uh, breathe into me that I might um, be the breath of God to my listeners. Father, would you give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, minds to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, uh, Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. Um, and before I go any further, I just want to thank Linda Ronstadt for showing up and um, leading us through worship this morning. If you don't know who Linda Ronstadt is, then do a, do a YouTube search and you'll be amazed. So, inside joke between Brett and I. So, um, two verses. And we can't really dive into two verses until we really get the context set, right? So, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a um, rule of hermeneutics that you don't just take a passage of Scripture and um, pull it out of the Bible and make it stand alone. It's got to be understood in its context, what's going on around it. And uh, so I want to spend a few moments before I get into these two verses just kind of discussing what we've already learned in the book, in our study of Hebrews. 
Um, so simple things like who is this book addressed to? Well, duh, it's addressed to Hebrews. <laughs> Hence the title. Now, from, from uh, our reading of Hebrews, we can determine uh, a few things about these Hebrews. First of all, that they appear to be uh, Hebrew Christians, Jews who have been converted to um, the way, right? Um, Jews who perhaps, since it was written somewhere around 62, 63 AD, that some of these elderly Jews may have sat at the feet of Jesus, have actually witnessed his miracles, heard his preaching firsthand. Um, if not, they were certainly influenced and brought to faith through the, the, work, the, uh, the early work of the disciples in uh, preaching um, the word. Um, but they had tasted the heavenly gift of new life, but it appears that this letter is addressed to those who were perhaps wavering. Having tasted the gift of life, they uh, maybe due to persecution, because persecution was a real thing then, or maybe just because they were Hebrews so steeped in the old Mosaic system that that was pulling them back into the old way, the old ways of uh, ceremonial um, uh, rituals and uh, so on, um, obeying the old Mosaic laws and... um, you know, we could say maybe they were backsliding just a bit, or they were certainly confused and wandering. The author is still debated to this day. Uh, originally, for, for years and years, it was thought that the Apostle Paul wrote this, but really smart guys who delve into parsing um, the scriptures very closely have detected, uh, it's written in a different style than the other letters that Paul had written. Um, so some people think it was Apollos. Uh, others think it was one of the other disciples. Uh, but it was certainly someone who came from the Hebrew or from the Jewish faith, had been converted to Christianity, understood the old way as well as understanding the new way of uh, approaching faith in God. So we've discovered as we've, we've gone through this, this study so far that Uh, Really, the writer of Hebrews, whoever it was, was setting um, or making a case for the superiority of Christ. You know, in in, um, Hebrews 1 2, we we see where uh, Christ or Jesus is is, uh, declared better than the prophets, he was a better spokesman. Uh, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And then following that we see that Christ is superior to the angels by virtue of his deity and his humanity. Verses 3 and 4 of the first chapter. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become like a, or become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So superior to the prophets, superior to the angels. And then um, 
Last week we learned that Christ is superior to Moses. For he is the son who provides heavenly rest. You know, Hebrews 3.2 establishes that Moses was faithful. But then uh, if, we, if we would look ahead later on, we have a further, uh, more detailed exposition of uh, the faithfulness of Moses. Hebrews 11, starting with uh, verse 24, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the, sto- the destroyer of the firstborn might touch them. Might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Moses was faithful, and yet Moses failed to a certain degree as a leader. You know, Jacob did a great job last week of, uh, of unpacking how um, the people under Moses' leadership angered God. And Moses himself actually sinned God to the point where he was not allowed to enter into the rest. The rest being the, um, the possession of the promised land. That was the rest that they were promised. That's the rest they were looking for. As a matter of fact, a whole generation of Hebrews failed to earn that rest because of their disobedience in the desert. So Jesus offers a more perfect rest. It's not a temporary rest in a physical location. It's an eternal rest at the feet of the King of Glory. And he not only offers that and promises that, but he fulfills that through what he has done on the cross. So Jesus is superior to the prophets. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. And so here we are today. Embedded in Hebrews, there's, there's a number of warnings. Uh, we've experienced three of them so far. In Hebrews 2.1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to that which we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So there's a warning against drifting away. In Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So there's a warning against departing or falling away. And then, as we read last week, there's a warning against disobedience. 
verse uh, 11 of chapter 4, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The disobedience he's referring to is the disobedience that the the Hebrew uh, ancestors of the readers of this letter fell into in the desert, in the wilderness. And uh, so we have, we have warnings. And that leads us to where we are today. I'm going to start um, with verse 11 of Hebrews 4 because I think there, it's so important to read this as a, a, a complete unit. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We can't really fully understand or examine verses 12 through 13 without uh, considering the warning contained in verse 11. The warning is against disobedience. And a key word is the first word in verse 12, for. Now, the word for could be understood to be a shortened version of the word therefore, or it could be another way of saying because. In either case, it connects what follows with what, what preceded. What, it connects the warning with the word of God. Seeing four as meaning therefore doesn't really make any sense in this, uh, in this context. Let us therefore strive to enter that rests so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Therefore, the word of God is living and active. That, that doesn't read very well. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But understanding it to mean because does. Therefore, strive to, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience because the word of God is living and active. Because the Word of God has authority, power to expose our disobedience, power to punish us for our disobedience, power, um, yeah, it makes a lot more sense when we consider that The word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So I want us to ask the question this morning, what or who is this word of God? Now we Baptists love this passage because we're in love with Scripture. We're in love with Scripture. Um, Historically, we have understood this passage to be referencing to Scripture. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture by the Holy Spirit. 
We believe in its authority over us. The re- we believe it's the revelation of God. We believe that it, it, it provides everything that we need for righteous living. You know, I, I spent a, a time preaching or pastoring in the Brethren denomination, and they uh, came out of the Reformation, and they were so reformed that even the, uh, the Lutherans didn't like them. <laughs> but they had a, they had a saying, um, uh, a motto, a mantra, whatever you want to call it, the Bible and nothing but the Bible. You know, we believe that the Bible, as, as bat, in our Baptistic traditions, and certainly the Brethren did, does do as well, that the Bible is the final authority for life. If we have a question about how to live, what to believe, go to the Bible. The answer's in the Bible. The Bible has authority. Yes, believe that. I believe that. But it does present some problems. You know, just a little little history of the brethren is they they were um, on fire zealots when they were in Germany before they were run out of first Germany and then off the continent entirely. The whole denomination, bad baggage and birdcage. But when one brethren left in the face of Europe, they all moved to Pennsylvania. <laughs> and there they sat in Pennsylvania, speaking German, insulated, little community, and uh, became very ingrown. Oh, I love the brethren. I love, I love their pietistic, their um, baptistic um, roots, um, distinctives, but the Bible became kind of, um, well, let me, let me just put it this way. Um, it became very legalistic. And that's the problem. That's a problem. We can, we can just dive into the Bible and say, thus saith the Lord, and this is the way it is, and become very legalistic. So I'll get into this more a little bit later, but um, I think maybe I'm like all of you. We have, I have experienced, and I'm, you've probably experienced times where uh, Scripture has been living and active in your life. You know, I, I, I've had several occasions in my life where um, I'll read a passage that I've read dozens, maybe hundreds of times, and with no effect on me. But all of a sudden, at a particular point in time, particular season, a particular reading of that familiar passage, it takes on new life, new meaning for me. It cuts me to the bone. You know, in the pages of Scripture, I have encountered my sin. In the pages of Scripture, I have encountered my helplessness, my hopelessness in the face of that sin. In the pages of Scripture, I have discovered the solution to that problem. And 
I think probably all of us at one time or another have had powerful experiences where the word of God has just leapt out at us and provided us great clarity into our lives, into uh, the, the character of God, into his heart for us. I know we probably have wept over, all of us have wept over scripture at one time or another when it's touched us deeply. You know, and, and this has been going on for centuries. And it's made history. For example, um, a rogue Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther in reading and meditating on uh, Romans 1, Um, verses 16 and 17 where he encountered the phrase or the truth the righteous shall live by faith changed his heart changed his whole outlook and relationship with God and motivated him to get really radical stand up to the Catholic Church nail some points of contention on the door of the cathedral and Christianity has changed, been changed because of that, because of two verses and the truth that the righteous shall live by faith. It came alive to him. It cut him deeply. But is the word of God that we encounter here in Hebrews referring to scripture? The word here is described as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In this... um, in this chapter or in this couple of verses here, I have uh, had kind of a vision. And, and yeah, I think I'm kind of captive to what's been going on around me. Um, a couple of days ago, uh, midweek, uh, there was a Facebook posting from some old parishioners of mine back when I was pastoring a church whose son um, had gone to the doctor, ears, nose, and throat specialist because he was dealing with what he thought was um, some seriously infected sinuses. He had some sinus issues. And I I picked up on that um, because I've been dealing with the same thing. I mean, some of you know I've been struggling with bloody noses for the last month or so and, and never had bloody noses before. Um, yeah, long story short, I could identify, I could empathize with my brother there. I knew him um, somewhat as the son of, a, of some dear friends at this former church of mine. He was an adult child, but before I was... Uh, pastoring at that church and he had 
was living, I think, down in Ames. But, so I didn't know him very well except when he came home to visit on occasion. Nice guy. Nice wife. Nice kids. But the ears and note throat specialist was not having any luck in fixing him. And so they ran some MRIs and they discovered a massive tumor in his brain. Right bottom. Yeah. Right center mass. And so last week, I think it was Thursday, was down in Iowa City undergoing brain surgery. Now, my ears, nose, and throat guy has been having me squirt a bunch of stuff up my nose to fix my problem, and that's invasive enough for me. Imagine brain surgery. And the image I get as I, as I read Hebrews 4, verses 12 especially, is I get the image of a skilled surgeon. A surgeon whose hands are steady, who has great talent and understanding, medical knowledge. Very carefully, very diligently going in with a a sharp instrument and cutting and slicing and removing the cancer. The Word of God, very diligently, very intently, very delicately removing the cancer of sin. It's just the image I got. Now, let's compare that to the the scripture that the Hebrews knew. Now, we have the advantage now of having this wonderful thing called the New Testament. We have great understanding about how the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the new, of pointing us to Jesus even back then in Genesis 1.1. We have this full body of scripture, but back then they had the law. That was a scripture they knew. That was a scripture that was drawing back these Hebrew apostates, if you want to call them, that this letter was addressed to. So, What was that law like? Well, that law condemns us. It crushes us. Scripture itself testifies that the law is powerless to save us. Look it up in Romans 8.3. The law is a curse. Galatians 3.13. The law made nothing perfect. Hebrews 7.19. The law is only a shadow. Hebrews 10.1. Romans 7 tells us that the, that the law came to make us guilty. Before the law, we weren't guilty because we didn't know any better. But the law came and exposed the guilt of our sin. The law came to, to make us aware that we are totally helpless, unable to stand under the weight of our sin. That's a crushing load. That's not 
the same image that I have of a delicate surgery. It's a crushing load. It's got a different feel to me. And again, maybe I've just been influenced by what my friend is going through, but it just seems to me that Scripture, the Scripture that the Hebrews knew was more harmful than helpful as it was left as it was. So, does the Word of God described here in Hebrews 4 refer to Scripture? I think there's more telling evidence in the last part of verse 12 and in verse 13. The last part of verse 12 reads, discerning and th- the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How well do you know yourself? There's a... There's a a saying that I use every now and then. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not. And that is that denial is not just a river in Egypt. We live in denial. Because our sin is so weighty. It's so ugly. It's so insidious and heavy. It stinks. And we just don't want to look at it. And so we deny, first of all, that it's there, then second of all, that it's that bad. But even worse than that is that we don't even know that it's there. No creature is hidden from his sight, verse 13 goes on to say. Personal pronoun, his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him personal pronoun to whom we must give an account now who do you suppose that is I see the incarnate word all over Hebrews 12 and 13 he knows us He knows our thoughts, our intentions, our hearts are laid bare and open before him. The prophet Jeremiah lamented, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I can't understand it. I don't know what drives me sometimes. Most times. All the time, I don't know. I'm in denial thinking that even I understand myself some of the time. My heart can be so wicked. My thoughts can be so impure. And yet I can stand before you and preach the word of God. Why? Because you don't know, you can't see inside me. I can't see inside you. I don't know your hearts, you don't know mine. But there is one that does. I'm not unique in God knowing my heart, my thoughts, my intentions. He knows all of ours. 
He sees clearly when we don't see at all. Jeremiah asks, who can understand it? And in the next verse, the next breath, the Lord says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The Lord knows. My dad used to say, you're only fooling yourself when I'd throw a story at him. He says, you're only fooling yourself. You're not fooling me, son. I'm a lot older than you. I've been around. I can read the tea leaves. I know. But even then, he knew in part. There is one that knows fully, completely. And he knows the beginning from the end. Everything in between. Who can understand my heart? I certainly can't. I'm so wrapped up in chasing squirrels, distracted by shiny objects, that I don't even see my sin. I don't see how it's affecting me, blind to how it's poisoning me and those around me. My thoughts are wandering, my intentions a mystery, my motives are stained and impure. And like Paul, I cry out, I do not do what I want to do, but what I hate, I do. What a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this body of sin? And Jesus says, I will, I will. I have. It's done. He wields the surgeon's knife. He delicately, deliberately, directly, relentlessly works on me, on you, on us. He performs a miracle. It's not brain surgery like my friend Dan is experiencing. It's heart surgery. So is the word of God here in Hebrews for scripture. You probably know by now where I'm coming from. But it's not either or. It's both and. Through chapter 4, the author has been building a case for the superiority of Christ in every way and in everything. And I see in Hebrews 4, verses 11 through 13, a case for the superiority of Jesus over Scripture, the incarnate word over the written word. Is that to say that the written word is obsolete? No, not at all. In 2 Timothy, we are told that all Scripture is breathed out by God. I love that. Breathed out by God. Scripture is the breath of God. What an image that is. He's going. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I love that. Scripture is the breath of God, providing inspiration for those whose pen put it to paper and revelation to those whose hearts receive it, those who breathe it in. 
Scripture is a precious instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit and His work to counsel us, to convict us, to correct us, to remind us of what Christ has done for us. The Holy Spirit takes the Word, the Scripture, and He makes it alive. That's what happens when we're reading Scripture for the umpteenth time and all of a sudden, boom, it hits us with new power and revelation. Maybe reducing us to tears. Be changing our lives. Adjusting our attitudes. Giving us strength when we are weak. It wasn't the words written on paper. It was the breath of God that the Holy Spirit received this. It's for you. So, what's the takeaway? Well, there's a couple here that I'd like you to consider. First of all, as we become what we behold, there's warnings against drifting, against departing, against disobedience. Being sober-minded, we recognize that the warnings that have been issued so far are valid. They're possible in every one of our lives. The Hebrew believers that this letter was addressed to, at one time they received the gift of life through Jesus Christ. That they were transformed from a legalistic form of worship to freedom. They experienced rest Rest that their forefathers didn't experience. And yet, they began to wander. Persecution? I get it, it's hard. We don't know what persecution is in this world, in our context. But they knew. Being a follower of Christ in that day could mean your life. Your physical life could mean your everything that you own could be taken from you. Could mean the people that you loved despised you or were taken from you. Persecution was really not a very happy time. We don't experience it here like that. It's going on in the world around us. In countless places around the world, it's still real today. But there's the old ways that are more insidious. Sin is so sweet. So tasty. And in a lot of ways, in a lot of cases, nobody's going to know but me and him. You don't think about him watching us. Knowing us. Scripture says that God is not just watching us from afar. He's not only with us, closer than a brother. We're taught that he's in us. And yet, 
we commune with darkness through ignorance, through weakness, through just evil desires. You think God doesn't know what's going on? So, we don't want to drift, we don't want to depart, we don't want to be disobedient. How do we guard against that? We're careful what we behold. You see, what we, what we do, our actions are predicated on what we believe. What we believe is predicated on what we behold where we feast our eyes, where we spend our time, what we cherish, what we deem important, how we spend our time. To mix a metaphor, we are diligent against drifting, departing, and disobedience by inhaling the breath of God. I want to encourage you to spend time in Scripture. I wasn't dissing Scripture. I'm just saying it's, it's not what saves us. It's not the solution. It's the instrument in the hands of God to change us, to heal us, to encourage us, to save us. Breathe, inhale the breath of God every day but do it with the right attitudes. What do I mean by that? I spoke earlier about some inherent challenges or problems that could rise by a, a, a love affair with the word. It can become, uh, the word can become a work list, a checklist. It can become a to-do list. It can be the thing that um, we, we can seek to obey the word without really seeking to meet the one who's embodied in the word. The brethren church that I love so much became very ingrown, very legalistic. They came to the United States back in the 1700s, I think it was. 600, 800 strong and two centuries later they're still 600, 800 strong. A little bigger now. But they lost it because the Bible became their checklist. They became like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who, didn't, who knew the letter of the law but they didn't know the spirit of the law. Do you want to be like the Pharisees? Do you want to know the Bible so well that you can recite it chapter and verse but yet not know the one that the Bible is about? It may come to, as a surprise to you but there are some amazingly bright and gifted Bible scholars. Know the Bible inside and out. Know what it means but don't believe a lick of it. They're scholars. And they see the Bible as an interesting piece of literature. And they've parsed it down to every 
jot and tiggle. I think that's the word. Whatever. You know what I mean. But they know, they know more about the punctuation than they do <coughs> about the incarnate word that it's all about, that it's designed to point us to. Do you want to be like that? Be careful when you read the Bible. Don't do it out of obligation. Oh, I'm a Baptist. I got to read the Bible. Don't do it out of habit. Don't make it a checkbox exercise. You know, I have read through the Bible numerous times. You know, if you read three chapters six days a week and five on the seventh day, you can read the Bible in a year. Simple formula. Build your spreadsheet, check them off, read the Bible. And I'm not saying that's not helpful. But pretty soon, you ever, you ever wonder what happens when you get behind a few days, a week or so? Now you don't have just three verses or five verses. They multiply rather quickly. And you start reading through just to catch up. Well, what do you get out of that? I'm not saying nothing, but probably not very much. When you read the Bible, I just want to encourage you, before you crack the pages, spend a little time with the incarnate word in prayer. And say, oh God, encounter me in the pages of your written word today. Reveal yourself to me. Give me something. You know what I need. You know what I'm going through. You know where I'm blind. You know where I'm rebellious. You know where I'm wounded. You know where I'm confused and lost. Speak to me. Reveal yourself to me. Breathe into me through your word today. And then when you're done, when your time in the word is over, it'd be okay to pray again and thank him for what he's given you. But then spend some time chewing on it. It's called meditation. I'm not talking about transcendental meditation or anything funky like that. I'm just saying, think about. Think about the word that you've just read. Don't make it, don't say, okay, I've read my three chapters today. Now I got to go do the dishes. Or I got to go to work. Or I got to get on that project. Now spend some time. Let the word sink deep. When he breathes into you through scripture, Inhale deeply and hold it. Yeah. I don't know. This is where I've been this week especially. I have a new view of this passage. And don't get me wrong, I love Scripture. I love the Word of God but I love the incarnate word even more. And the written word is just designed to get you calibrated with the incarnate word. To 
point you to him so that he can do what only he can do. I would encourage you to approach scripture kind of like I'm going to encourage you to approach the Lord's table here. So I want to invite the worship team to uh, come back up. Ladies and gentlemen, Linda Ronstadt. (laughs) And um, we're going to approach the Lord's Supper. We enjoy the Lord's Supper every Sunday morning the Lord's table. We practice, um, we encourage you, if you're a believer, and not a member of this church, that's all right. Enjoy. Come to the table. But as you do, don't do it again like you might have done with Scripture as a checkbox, as a tasty treat at the end of the service. It's something that we practice here, but as an opportunity to commune with the living God. For he advised us that as often as we meet together that we share the Lord's Supper and we remember. Remember for the purposes of inspiration. Remember for the purposes of life change. Remember that his blood was shed for us and it's represented in the juice. Remember that his body was broken for us. It's represented in the the bread. Remember that should be us. But he paid the price that was due us and now paid in full. So we're going to worship again and we're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper. Before we do that, I want to pray one more time, but I also just want to finish a piece of business that um, is kind of out of place here, but I I don't know what else to do it. And that is, um, most of you, I hope, are aware that there's a members meeting this afternoon, two o'clock, right here, concerning the future of this church. And um, there will be an email going out that will be covering... A lot of details, you will have it by the time you get home. I would encourage you to take a little time to read that and uh, become familiar with it. Uh, Join us back here if you're a member of this church at 2 o'clock. Okay, so let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you most of all for your son who is embodied in the word, who is pointed to from Genesis 1 through the end of Revelations in your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for the invitation to remember. May we never forget. In Jesus' name, amen.